Like a backstage pass to the world of fly fishing travel, this is Waypoints, the podcast of destination angling. News and events, helpful travel tips, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from some of the most seasoned and experienced names in fishing travel. Waypoints is brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, the industry's number one specialty travel company for the very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered for your next fishing adventure. And now, your Waypoints host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. Shane McLaughlin is the owner and lead guide for Sunrise Pack Station, a family-owned outfitting business that specializes in backcountry horseback fishing trips in Yellowstone National Park. Shane has been a backcountry guide for 32 years and first began guiding in the mountains when he was 18 years old. After working in numerous roles in the guest and horse industries throughout the Intermountain West, including stints in Montana, Colorado, Idaho, and Wyoming, Shane eventually settled in Montana, where for the past 25 years, he spent his summers sharing the wonders of Yellowstone's backcountry with anglers and visitors from around the world. Almost everyone has heard of Yellowstone National Park, and many have actually motored through the park, taking in the popular and iconic geysers, waterfalls, and canyon views. Few people venture into the wilderness backcountry, however, which is why we wanted to have Shane on the show to talk about the real Yellowstone, a world that can only be experienced and appreciated once you leave the pavement and parking lots behind. Shane, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about the real Yellowstone. Sure. So let's let's start the program by giving our listeners some some quick facts about Yellowstone National Park because I think oftentimes people don't realize what the resource is and and how large it is and also how important it is really in the history of the country. So the park was established in 1872 and it is the world's first national park. That's correct. That's pretty special. It is. And then what people often don't get is the size of Yellowstone. It's what is it? 2.2 million acres. 2.2 million acres. So guests ask me, so they ask me all the time, where do you leave from in Yellowstone? I said, Yellowstone is so large. We leave from everywhere. We have to go to a different trailhead every week to be able to go to a different place in the park because it is so large. Yeah. I mean, if you put it in perspective, it's 63 air miles north to south, 54 air miles east to west. And all told, the park is larger than the states of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. That's right. I mean, it is a massive piece of land. Right. And, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's interesting that about 5% of the park is covered by water, 15% by grasslands, but 80% by forests. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really where you operate. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Now, one thing when people think of Yellowstone lately, um, oftentimes they think of crowds. And when you look at visitor numbers in the park these days, especially, you know, with the pandemic over the last couple of years, so many people staying closer to home and taking, you know, driving trips rather than international flying trips. I think I recently read that there were close to four and a half million visitors in 2021. Yes. And that was just up through October. So we don't have the October through December numbers yet. So it's going to go higher than that. Yeah. Those are, are staggering numbers. And it should be noticed that's kind of without the international traffic that we've been lacking the last couple of years. Right. Yep. We haven't had the Chinese influx uh, that we've had in the past. Yeah. A lot of Asian tourists, a lot of European tourists that come in. How many of these people, however, of of these millions of visitors, you know, really get to experience the real Yellowstone when they pretty much never 
leave the pavement or the parking lots or the main attractions where the crowds tend to congregate. You know, in your opinion, how does someone truly see and experience what the real Yellowstone is all about? Well, that's, I mean, that's a good question. The real Yellowstone is hard to say. What is the real Yellowstone? We, we look at, you know, the iconic places that everybody goes to, to drive to see those, those are what, what made Yellowstone. That's what made the national park, uh, a national park. That's what those first discoverers found. And they said, we got to set this aside because of this, you know, because of these geysers and these waterfalls and these canyons. But what, what has become Yellowstone now is that great big reserve of backcountry, that great big place where there is no one else or where there are so few other people. And that is, that is now becoming the real Yellowstone. Uh, everybody is driven through and seen. And it's funny, I hear guests tell me all the time as they're driving in the park, you know, we're going we're gonna to see Yellowstone today. I'm like, really? You're going to see all of Yellowstone today? Oh, yeah, we're going from the Cody Gate over to West Yellowstone. We're going to see the park. I'm like, yeah, you're going to see about... 15% of the park, if you're lucky. Uh, less than 1% of all the people that come to Yellowstone go more than a mile off the road. Oh, yeah. Which is wonderful for all of us who go in the backcountry. Because when we get away from the road, we now are in the wilderness of Yellowstone. And it's not technically wilderness. There are technical terms and definitions for wilderness. But it is as close as you can get to wilderness within the, the laws of the Park Service uh, that you can get. So it is, it is an amazing place to get away from those huge crowds and groups. And, you know, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me when I spend time in the park. You know, there are tour buses and there are people and you go to the boardwalks and you go to the main attractions and there are crowds. But literally, as soon as you set foot off the pavement and start hiking, within a matter of minutes, you leave all of that behind and you feel like you have that place to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is the case for a lot of Yellowstone. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fishing, because obviously that's what our, our listeners love to talk about and hear about. You know, the rivers and fisheries in Yellowstone that are easy to access, they get fairly pressured. You know, the well-known rivers such as the Firehole, Madison, the Upper Yellowstone, they are great fisheries. They continue to produce. They're amazing places to, you know, to spend time on the water and, and you know, they're full of fish. But there's a lot of traffic to these easily accessed areas. You know, throughout the park, every pull-off tends to have a car and there's an angler, you know, again, close to their vehicle. They don't want to get, you know, out there in bear country, right? right. But, you know, it, it, you don't guide on these kind of drive-to waters in the park. That's not your thing. Nope, nope. We are, our goal is to be either by foot or by horse. You know, that's to get you away from the roads and the crowds. And when we put you, our goal is to put you on a horse. Uh, I think you can see the backcountry better from the back of a horse than you can on foot. And there are a lot of people who would argue with me about that. But the reason I say that is when your horse is walking, your horse is looking at the rocks and the trail so that they don't stumble. You don't have to do that. When you're hiking, and I've done plenty of hiking, that you have to watch your feet so you don't look up and see the country around you. When you're on the back of a horse, you're just looking 360 degrees all the way around you. You never have to worry about stumbling or falling down. And you can just enjoy the view as you're going along. Just taking it all in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is a great way to see and experience the park at a pace that allows you to really appreciate right. it. Right. Yep. Well, let's talk about some of the remote backcountry areas that you guys access and fish, because this is not, you know, again, the standard drive to places that, you know, they talk about in the local fly shops or that are easily accessed by anglers that, you know, are spending a couple days in the park wanting to fish kind of the the well-known holy waters of Yellowstone. Um, you guys have a lot of different trip options, and I know that they're seasonally based. You know, you start in kind of 
you know, certain areas. And as the, the summer season progresses, you move into others that, you know, the access tends to open up when things dry out a bit. Um, but one thing that all of your destinations have in common is they provide access to these different backcountry areas. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you look at the website, when you look at the, the menu of different trip options that you have, Shane, how does someone choose the right trip to match what they're looking for with so many choices? Well, there's, I mean, what I like to do is, is interview the folks who call me and ask, you know, we're, we want to go fishing in Yellowstone. All right, good. Tell me what you want. What are you looking for when you go fishing in Yellowstone? Well, I want big fish or I want lots of fish or I want to get away from, you know, the groups or I'm looking for, I want to fish, but I also want to take my family along with me or I want to fish, but I want to also see some neat country. So I interview you, help you figure out what you're actually looking for. Once I know what you're looking for, then I can steer you to the right trip. And, you know, there are folks who are like, well, there's areas they, they already know. I've heard of it. I want to go to Slough Creek. I'm like, yeah, everybody wants to go to Slough Creek. It's an amazing fishery. And it's nine miles in to get to the third meadow. Everybody wants to go to the third meadow of Slough Creek. Okay, we'll take you there. What, how do you want to fish while you're there? Well, I want to fish big dry flies. Okay, well, if we're going to go big dry flies like terrestrials, big grasshoppers, let's go in August. No, I want to fish the hatches. All right, let's go early July. You know, I want to get there when there's not a lot of other people. Okay, we're going to hit, hit September. So we, we want to steer you to the right place at the right time based on what you want to do. And our trips aren't custom trips, but everybody who calls me, I customize the trip for them because that's the way Yellowstone is. I mean, and that's the way we are. We're small. We only take eight guests at a time. So eight people, we can, I can, and it's usually couples, you know, we'll take four couples. Well, four couples, we can really customize a trip for those four people or those four couples to go and see exactly what they want to see. Well, that's pretty amazing. And, and your season of operation, the park opens to backcountry horse travel around when? The 1st it's of July? July 1st. That's July 1st. Go. And you guys will go until when? About mid-September. Because once you get to mid-September, the weather starts to get iffy. There's chances of snow. It gets colder. And I've had a lot of folks who they love to be out there, but they don't like being cold. So, you know, once we get to that mid-September, it's time to start pulling out. Now, I'll still do, if somebody calls and said, hey, I really want to go October 1st, I will put a trip together. We'll go out October 1st, but I will drop you off and I'm going back home because I'll do a drop camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, you guys are, are going nonstop once July 1st hits in the it park. Is. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we because Yellowstone is so big that we can go, we can ride to a different place every week all summer long. And I do hit Slough Creek two or three times and I hit the Lamar two or three times, but we're in the Lamar, we're going to different places. Lamar is a huge place to go and fish. And there's so many different camps in there and so many different places you can go. We'll do two trips in the Lamar, but they're two totally different trips, even though it's up the same canyon. And in uh, Slough, the changes of the year make the camp different every time we ride in there. So we're, we're literally going a different place every single week. Well, operating in the park, you know, as an outfitter is not easy and, and not just anyone can do it. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to be a licensed concessionaire. Tell us a little bit about that process and kind of the, the regulations and the oversight that in, in one way probably makes it a challenge, but in other ways probably keeps it as good as it is. Yes. And uh, part of it is that there's a Yellowstone has a reservation system. So that reservation system keeps the backcountry from being overrun. Uh, we all have to apply for our camps, uh, and we don't have set camps like you. You hear guys who are hunting outfitters up on the force. They have this wall tent city up there that you ride into, you stay there, and that's your base of operations. Yellowstone, you're not allowed to put anything permanent. 
So we have to pack our camp in and set it up every time. And we are unique amongst other outfitters as we are a low impact outfitter. A low impact outfitter, our goal is to be as light on the land as possible. We care about the people. And I actually have what I tell folks is a hierarchy of safety. My first goal is to keep my guests safe. So when you're in the backcountry, I talk to you about how to how to live in the backcountry without hurting yourself and then without hurting your horse. And then the third is without hurting the land. And that land is important. So if we want to have the Yellowstone that we experience every year uh, be that same beautiful, pristine place, then we have to know how to handle our stock in the backcountry. Stock can be very hard on the backcountry. So we uh, we use these low impact techniques to help uh, get in and out of the backcountry. And because we run low impact techniques, we have a very gentle on the land, gentle on our guests, gentle on our stock uh, system that that works in the backcountry for us. Now, becoming licensed to operate as a concessionaire in the park, it, it's a hard thing to do. Are, are there a lot of people doing it? There are. So there are 40 different contracts in Yellowstone Park that are these concessionaire contracts. Two-thirds of them are held by guest ranches who do a day ride here and there. It's just a sticker they can put on their company's website that says, hey, we work in Yellowstone Park. There are probably a dozen outfitters who go backcountry like we do all summer long. Most of those are hunting outfitters, so they run July till the 1st of September when archery season starts, and then they all drop out. So when it comes to September, we're almost there by ourselves. Well, let's talk about a normal day on a pack trip. Um, and you guys do everything from like two day trips to what, seven day trips. Yeah. If, if I sign up for a trip, what can I expect on a normal day on one of your backcountry trips? Uh, we're going to give you a normal two days. Okay. Uh, first day is we're going to pack up and head in the park. We meet you at the trailhead about 11 o'clock. Uh, we get all your gear out. We put all your gear on the mules. We get you on a horse and then we teach you how to ride. So many guys have come to us and said, well, I went with this outfitter. He stuck me on a horse. He said, here are the reins, just keep its nose pointed that way and we're leaving. And that's it. And by the time they got into camp, they were so beat up that they couldn't even go down and fish. They hurt so bad from riding. We start riding at the trailhead and we give a riding lesson and we teach you the basics of how to ride, how to use your legs right, how to use your hands right, how to sit up straight so that when you get to camp, you can get off your horse and you say, yeah, my muscles are a little tired but I'm fine. And then they walk down to the river and go fish. And when it's time to ride back that out, they're not dreading getting back on that horse. So, and then we have the guides. Uh, I ride in the front. I lead my pack string so that I deal with the bears in the trail, whatever's in the trail. Then I have uh, a number of guests and then I have another guide in the middle and then I have a guide in the rear. So you're surrounded by guides. And anytime you have a question, all you have to do is look over your shoulder or look in front of you. And there's somebody there to answer that question. And usually the question is, how do I keep from bouncing so hard? This is killing me. And we tell them, all right, here's how you do it. Let me help you. I can see that you're having trouble. Why don't you sit up straight, you know, put your knees like this, your toes out, whatever, and help them ride so that they can ride in there and be more comfortable. So that's the first thing is we get them comfortable with a horse and we start heading down the trail. We ride away, so we stop, have lunch. We ride away, so we stop, we get off and rest. We ride away, so we have a break. The goal is, is that if we put you on a horse and ride just straight in there, when you get in there, you're going to be in poor shape. So we want to get you in there ready to get off the horse and go do the next thing. So that's the first, get you into camp. Once you're into camp, we give you a rod and your rail and say, go hit the river. And once you're on the river, we let you do your thing for a little while. We set up camp. Uh, we cook all the meals, saddle all the horses, set up all the tents so that everything's done. You're just down there fishing. 
Uh, we have you come back around seven o'clock for dinner. Uh, by then you've had enough fishing. You're a little tired. You're a little hungry. You come up, there's hors d'oeuvres waiting on the table for you. We get you started with a snack. If, uh, if you packed in a beer or you packed in some wine, a little wine before dinner with your, with your hors d'oeuvres. And then we sit you down for dinner at the table, table and stools. Again, it's low impact. We're not packing in big, heavy chairs. They're just stools we're sitting on, but we sit around the table and have our dinner. And then after that, we go to the fire. Uh, I sit down by the fire and I start talking about the history of the park, uh, the, well, anything about the park, birds, trees, flowers, whatever you want to know. We just educate you about the park around the fire. When people have questions, they want to just sit back and relax and ask questions. And I let them ask all the questions they want. When they run out of questions, then I start just telling stories, telling the history of the park, stories of trips we've had in the past. The question everybody asks, what about the bears? What about the wolves? What about, I mean, so we tell you all the stories. We try not to tell the bear stories the first night because nobody sleeps. <laughs> so we do the wolf stories and other things the first night. The last night is the real bear stories. So we'll tell those. <laughs> you want everybody up early anyway right. to follow more. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's right. Well, it, it, you know, having done your trips in the past, I can tell you that the, the food is unbelievable. You do not go hungry on your trips. That is our goal to keep very well fed. Yeah, it still might be the best blueberry pancakes I've ever had in my <laughs> life. But uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what it looks like for the angler. What can and, and I know that this depends on where you are in the park, what piece of water you're on, the different fisheries. What can someone expect with a day of backcountry fishing, kind of the length of the fishing day, the types of water, the amount of water, those kinds of things. Right. Well, a moment ago, we were talking about day one is, is getting you in and getting you there. Day two is to get you on the river and keep you on the river. So most of our trips, like if we run a five-day trip, day one's a travel day, day two is a fishing day. Day three is a short travel day. The afternoon's fishing. The next day's a full day fishing. The last day's a ride out. So our goal is to keep you on the water as much as possible. And the waters, it depends on where you are. I mean, Yellowstone has amazing waters and, and varieties of waters. There's this super clear, slow-moving, crystal clear waters down in the Beckler Meadows. I mean, it is, it is beautiful rainbows, 24-inch rainbows. And, but because it's crystal clear and slow, you sneeze on that water and those fish disappear. But in that same area in the Beckler, you, you ride up the Beckler River Canyon and you get away from that flat water and you go up. We start fishing plunge pools all the way up Beckler. And there are so many fish in those plunge pools of all those waterfalls up there that you can 35 fish in two or three hours. I mean, it's just one after another after another. And size, you know, because they're plunge pools, sometimes the fish you're catching are six inches, sometimes they're 14 inches. It just depends on, but the activity, there's so many fish to fish right there. So you can get, you know, in the same trip, you can get those great big, I mean, it's like two different rivers and two different fish species that you're fishing. Well, that's pretty amazing. And, and you nailed it. I mean, the diversity, I mean, from slow moving, kind of meandering meadow, you know, rivers and streams to, you know, tiny creeks that are, you know, fast and, and full of, as you said, of, of those six to 12, 14 inch fish, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of dry fly fishing. Oh, tons. That's most of what we do, you know. I, I get people who come back and say, well, I want to nymph. I'm like, go nymph all you like, you know, you, and you can throw some streamers here and there. You don't really need to a lot of that. Uh, you can do, I think Yellowstone is the best dry fly fishing or not the best dry fly fishing. It is best to dry fly fish there uh, in the summertime, July, August, September. That is, that's what you do at that time. And most people are fishing, what, four weight rods, sometimes uh, threes, fives. Yeah. Anywhere from four to six. Four yeah. to six. Yeah. Okay. Depending on where you are. And you don't need a lot. I mean, you bring a box of, you know, attractors and caddis and, you know, some, mm -hmm. some hoppers and terrestrials and you're kind of in the game. Yes. Yep. 
Well, the Yellowstone cutthroat trout, you know, is really without question kind of the iconic native fish species of the region and certainly of the park. And it's what the fishing in Yellowstone is really known for. But that's not all that anglers can find throughout the park. Talk right. to us a little bit about the different species. Yep, there are. Yeah, I mean, Yellowstone's got a good variety for, for being what it is. It's a high mountain area. So high mountain kind of limits what can thrive there and survive there. So we have the trout species. There's the West Slope and the Yellowstone Cutthroat. And then there's Brooks, Browns, and Rainbows. Now, the Brooks, Browns, and Rainbows were all introduced fish. Uh, the Rainbows weren't. They have just migrated up and competed. But the Browns and, or, yeah, the, Browns and the Brooks have been introduced into the, into the system. Uh, and they have been a dominant fish. They're strong fish. But Yellowstone's trying to uh, correct some things they feel like are problems they've started in the past. So they want to limit or eliminate, if possible, those Brooks and Browns. So they have fishing uh, restrictions and, and techniques that they, they want us to follow. But the, the, so that's the trout species. Then we have Arctic grayling. Uh, there's mountain whitefish. Um, and those are kind of the big, the big few that are up there. I mean, you get into some of the more minnows and, and small, small fish that they, they aren't, they're not our angler fish, you know. So you've got your indigenous species, but but all of the species you talked about are wild. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's no stocking. Nope. It, it's all natural. Yes. Natural reproducing. Well, let's talk about the general health and kind of the current populations uh, of the cutthroat and the other species. I mean, being in the backcountry, pressure's limited, mm -hmm. um, which is always a good thing when it comes to angling. But but what's your perspective on kind of the, the current health of the ecosystem back there? It has, well, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, I think we had the perfect storm of trout eliminating factors i mean we we had lost several fisheries inside the park they just the fish disappeared uh up on the mirror plateau in broad creek there used to be uh, used to be a great fishery there's not a fish to be found up there and i go up there every every couple of years and check again just to see is there any fish in here yet are they coming back and there is no sign pelican creek was an amazing fishery for a long time and it disappeared and then uh, the thoroughfare was an amazing fishery, and it, again, just disappeared. And we, you know, we've talked, where does all this, you know, how, where does this come from? Why are they disappearing? And you look at uh, 10 years of drought from 2000 to 2010, uh, major forest fires, siltation, um, warming temperatures of the waters, all these different things are, are, each one of those individually is hard on the trout. You put them all together. So you, you mentioned the siltation and, and some of the effects, you know, there's naturally occurring forest fires and it's a good thing for the ecosystem, but a lot of times it can lead to, you know, some follow on erosion and siltation, which of course impacts spawning of these, these wild fish. Right. So the siltation was part of the other spawning issue was the introduction of lake trout. So many of the fish in Yellowstone used, you know, lived in Yellowstone Lake and then ran up the streams to spawn. And, and the lake trout just have hammered those populations where they survived in the lake. And that is, that's another one of those major factors that is really affected. But I think even without lake trout, uh, the, the fish would have been struggling. Uh, you know, forest fire is naturally occurring, but we have loved our forests in the West to death. We have said we must protect these at all costs, and we have not let them burn. We have not let them be logged. And those kind of things then make your forest get old. And people forget that, that trees have a lifespan just like we do. We can live, you know, they live 75 to 100 years, kind of like we do sometimes. So if you let all the trees, you protect them all and don't let them burn, don't let them get cut, then the whole forest gets to be one age, one old age. And once they're old, then they're susceptible to pine bark beetle. 
to cutworm moth to forest fire, whatever. And then the forest fires come through, and they're not a small forest fire that burns one little area. You know, it's a huge forest fire. And when the whole mountain or the whole mountain range is denuded of trees, well, then your siltation problem is drastic. We don't have that. You know, in, in Yellowstone, it hasn't been that way because after about 19, what was it, 68, 70, they decided we're going to do this let it burn policy. And that let it burn would allow small fires to burn. And the, the age of Yellowstone's forest became much more variegated. It was not all one age. It was a whole bunch of different ages. So now we have these smaller fires. And a small fire is surrounded by trees. So when it burns and the rain washes it down, it runs into other uh, plants and uh, foliage that slows that siltation down, protects the waters. But they didn't really get to that place until after the fires of 88. And after 1988, 50% of the park burned. That means huge areas, you know, a million acres are open to rain wash and that washed into our streams. And that is what we are still dealing with uh, now. So as, as Yellowstone's forests get healthy again, then the streams will follow and they will, you know, with heavy, heavy snowpacks and, and heavy washouts in the springtime, it'll clean all those streams back out and it'll, it'll help recover those. But we're still, we're still dealing with that and it's going to take time. Yeah, and that's why you're picking and choosing your destinations for anglers because there are some places that still fish incredibly well. Right. Others that you mentioned used to be pretty good, aren't quite as, as much anymore. Right. And so you kind of have to, you know, pick and choose where you're going. And they're changing still. I mean, even Slough Creek, like Slough Creek is it is it is protected from natural uh, environmental problems. So because it's a slow moving, meandering stream with lots of grass on the banks it never blows out in a rainstorm where you go up to Lamar and you sneeze in the Lamar and it will muddy up and turn to chocolate milk. But SLU has its own issues now. So it's not dealing with environmental factors. It's dealing with population factors. It has become so popular that there are times, you know, I love SLU and I think SLU is one of uh, the best places to fish in the park because of uh, the size of the fish, the beauty of the fish, their, uh, their interactiveness with you when you're fishing them. Uh, because the waters are clear, there's huge deep pools. Uh, you can watch a pod of 10 fish laying down the bottom. They're all 20-inch cutthroat laying down there. And you throw your fly, you watch your fly working its way down the river, and the fish comes up, he studies, he checks, I'm not sure, yeah, I'll take it. You know, you get to watch and interact with all that. But when they've had so many people come in there, uh, they begin to start acting differently. They begin to be be educated. And, and slew when I was first coming in there, you know, it was, it was kind of popular. It was a good fishing place, but there's so many other good fishing places in the park that it wasn't the fishing place. But now, uh, there's two years ago, I rode in there. I set up my camp at 2S8, which is the one that's the farthest in. It's, it's about a mile south of the park boundary on the north end of the park. And while I was in my camp, I had eight guests, eight fishermen. We had, uh, probably, Six or eight guys came down from the Silvertip Ranch, which were just outside of the park. They came into the park to fish. Uh, there are two backpacker sites nearby. Both of those had large groups in it. Somebody rode a group of people in for the day to a cabin that's down there. And it's a park service cabin, so you can't stay overnight there. But people often just park there for the day to go fish. There were 40 people on the river in Slough Creek in one day when I was down there with my fishermen. I'm like, this is not the experience that I take these people out for. We're looking for that backcountry, remote, it's just us out here. And now I tell guests, you know, we're going to go to Slough Creek, but, you know, that's, I didn't have to used to say, but, but now I do. 
but the fishery is still good. Where, you know, I take you down in the thoroughfare, you will see no one else. But the fishing, you never know. There are places down in the thoroughfare where I've, I was down there probably four or five years ago. And we had a, uh, my guide had lost his wallet out in the meadow. And the meadow was in a big bend of the river. So I was out there one evening, just, it was just getting dusk. I'm trying to help him find his wallet. He actually gave up, went back. I said, I'm just going to go out here and look a little farther. And I got out by the, the river in that big bend in the river. And I don't know what happened, but somebody turned the fishing light on. Because when I walked out there, all you saw were these great big fins of huge cutthroat just schooling out there constantly. And they were, I, there was a hatch going on, so they're all feeding. And there were tons of fish. And I'm like, this is the thoroughfare. There's not supposed to be tons of fish out here. But in this particular bend, at this particular moment, they were. I went back the next morning. I couldn't find a fish. They weren't there anywhere. So they're out there, but it's so inconsistent or inconsistent that I, I can't market that as an amazing place to go fishing. But if you hit it right, it is an amazing place to go fishing because the fish are all huge cutthroat. So each place in Yellowstone is different and each one has its, its limitations. Well, you know, I, I think for the Slough Creek fishery, what we need to do is get the Park Service to just start reintroducing all the problem bears <laughs> back to Slough, and then that would cut down on the number of people back there. It'd be perfect. It would help, yeah. 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 Well, are, are you optimistic about the future of the park and its fisheries? I am. I, the, the park is really working hard to manage the fisheries well. I mean, that's which. I'm, they, I'm sure the park is trying to manage everything well, but there are a lot of things I see the Park Service doing that they don't do well because they're a government agency. You know, and anytime you're a government agency, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's too complicated. Uh, and have, when you're trying to corral four and a half million people. <laughs> exactly. But their, their fish biologists really are working hard at, at keeping the fishing populations in Yellowstone healthy, and they're trying to improve them. So, you know, what they've started doing is uh, they've started making natural, I don't know what you call them. Oh, just natural. So they've turned High Lake into, uh, into the pool that we're going to take all of our fish out of. You know, we're going to grow fish here and we're going to restock them other places, but they're doing it all naturally. It's still like, all wild. Yeah. Still all wild fish. They, and they're bringing it. So the thing is, is up Fan Creek, Fan Creek and High Lake are the two in North America of the most pure strains of, of Yellowstone cutthroat. So they want to protect that. So they built a fish weir. And I have a hard time as a backcountry wild um, naturalist having people build dams on our streams in Yellowstone. I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel right. But this is necessary. And it's not a permanent concrete dam. They're building a sandbag dam, but it's a fish weir. So the fish can't get up there and, and mess with those strains of fish. So they're protecting these areas. And then they actually wrote and owned High Lake, and they cleaned it out because there were West Slope cutthroat and Yellowstone cutthroat in there. And they're not sure how the West Slope got in there, but they said they're here. So we're going to take them out, and then we're going to put those good fish back in that we want to. So they put in the West Slope cutthroat, and that is now the pool that we the Yellowstone from, cutthroat or the Yellowstone cutthroat. Yes, this is the pool now we're going to pull from to restock the rest of Yellowstone Park. So they're using the the cleanest fish possible to restock the park. And I think that is admirable. Uh, and I think how they're doing it is admirable. They're working hard not to damage, you know, any of the other species. We're, we're really working in a place that was pretty clean to start with, and we're just going to kind of clean it up a little bit and then put these fish in there and get them going good, and then we're going to move them out to the rest of the park. So they're doing that. They're also trying to control the non-native fish 
through angling, which I appreciate. Uh, we have enough anglers in Yellowstone that if we really just wanted to say, get rid of all fish in Yellowstone, there, there's enough guys who would go take them all out. Uh, so what they're doing is, is they said, if you catch a brook, a brown, or a rainbow in areas that we only want these Yellowstone cutthroat, you need to keep them. It's not that you should keep them. They said the law is you're supposed to puncture their bladder and throw them back in so you're not drawing bears along the shores. Um, but they want to eliminate these non-native species through angling. And I like that better than wipe out the stream with rotenone, restock them, and hope that it sticks. We don't need to do that. We have enough anglers, especially down by the roads. I mean, there's your fish weirs, your angler along the road, because there's enough guys there that if they'll take all those rainbows, brooks, and browns, that we're going to protect those other fish. So they're doing these different systems, these different ideas, these different management styles in the park to help uh, to help the fish. And I really see the future of fishing in Yellowstone uh, to be sustainable. Yeah, for, I mean, pure strain, Yellowstone cutthroat, one of the, you know, Really, the only place in the world you're going to find that. Right. Yep. Well, when I had a chance to do a trip with you, Shane, several years ago, I learned that along with being an accomplished outfitter, great with horses, mules, camp setups, fishing, you're also a true historian when it comes to Yellowstone. You seem to have a deep respect for the people that first called the region home, as well as those that scouted and explored the park you know, back in the 1800s. Talk to us a little bit about that and kind of your love for the history of the park. For me, so I've talked to, to folks uh, a lot in, in doing backcountry trips, and I, I feel like as a guide, part of our, what we do with people is we have to interpret what they're looking at. So when you ride into Yellowstone Park and you see the trees and the birds and the flowers, you see the mountains, uh, you, you really just see kind of a postcard picture. Everybody's seen that already, so, but you don't know what you're looking at. And our goal is to help, you know, break that down and help you understand what you're looking at. Why are you looking at a mountain right now that doesn't have a whole bunch of condos on it? Why are you looking at a river that there's a half a dozen anglers on because there's no road here? And why is that? Well, it's because of those first people who came through the park saw something unique about the park, saw something special about the park, or at least the area. It was called the Upper Yellowstone back then. It was, there was no Yellowstone Park. Nobody knew what a park was back then. So they said this Upper Yellowstone region is a unique area, and we should probably do something about protecting it. And the first ones who came through, I mean, if you want to get way back there, the first ones who came through were all the Native Americans. I mean, they, there was only one tribe who actually lived inside the park, but the park was visited. They probably had, you know, tons of visitors back then, too, from all the Native American groups. And why would they come in? Because Yellowstone is, is full of wildlife. It's full of moisture. Moisture produces berries and plants and things that the natives wanted. So it was like the giant grocery store. Everybody came in there to go get these, you know, things to protect or to feed their families for the winter. So it was a draw because it was the big grocery store. But it also was unique. I mean, people just, I'm sure natives back then, just like we today, want to see geysers and want to see boiling hot springs and stick their fingers in warm water in the backcountry. I mean, that's just, that's not normal. So to be able to go do that, I'm sure that was part of the draw. Uh, but after you get from the Native Americans, then the white uh, settlers started to come in. And even before the white settlers, it was the white explorers. And the white explorers moved through. So we had people like John Coulter, who was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, he was on his way out with the Lewis and Clark expedition, heading back down the Missouri River. And he ran into a group coming up the river who said, hey, we want to build a fur fort on the Yellowstone River. Do you have anybody who could guide us? And Lewis and Clark immediately said, no. We, we came out as a group. We're going back as a group. 
And that's how it's going to be. But then they paused and they thought about it and they said, well, I guess we should ask who in their right mind would really, after being out here for three years, not seeing their family, want to turn around and go right back in. But they said, well, let's ask. So they asked. And John Coulter says, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And I'm sure they all jaws dropped, but they all said, okay, well, if you want to, you can, because you have been such a faithful member of our party. You have done your duties uh, without qualm, without any kind of issue that we want to support you. And if you want to turn around and go back in, then we release you and send you back in. So he turned right around, went back in and uh, took a guy named Manuel Lisa, who was building the fur fort, took him up on the Yellowstone River, set up the you know, it said, here's a good place for you. And then Manuel Lisa said, well, we're going to build this fort, but we want to trade with all the natives. So can you go tell the Indians that we're here? And he said, okay. So he went off for a 150 mile walk. And on part of his walk, he walked through the upper Yellowstone. And when he walked through the upper Yellowstone, he saw the geysers, he saw uh, Old Faithful, he saw, um, you know, the Firehole River, all these, you know, hot springs, boiling mud pots, volcanoes, all this kind of stuff. So when he came back out after visiting with all the different natives and going back to Manulisa, he started telling them about what he saw. And when he started describing this, you know, smoke and fire and boiling mud and it smelled like sulfur, they said, man, that sounds like hell. That's a description of hell. So Yellowstone's first name was Coulter's Hell, named after his little jaunt through the park. So that's- And they all thought he was crazy. They wanted to lock him up at that point. (laughs) Like, yeah, is this stuff real? But then pretty soon, uh, more explorers go through, and it is real. Yeah, I mean, and he is arguably kind of recognized as the first uh, non-Native American to really explore that area in depth. And and the stories he came back with were almost unbelievable. Right. Well, and then you had, after Coulter... In those early years of exploration, you had so many other explorers and expeditions that were then drawn to this this unique area. I mean, you had Jim Bridger, you had the Folsom Cook expedition, other expeditions by Washburn and Hayden. You know, the word got out kind of in the late 1800s and, and they kept coming. Yes. So once uh, Washburn and Hayden went through, Washburn uh, was Henry Dana Washburn. He was the Surveyor General of Montana. He was a Brigadier General from the Civil War. I mean, he had a long history of, of being an outdoorsman and a rugged individualist. And he, along with nine other men from Helena, Montana. And I, I will pause here to let people know that I know Yellowstone is in Wyoming, but Yellowstone is Montana's national park. It was nine guys from Helena, Montana, who discovered Yellowstone. It was, it was Montanans who helped protect Yellowstone. It is still Montanans who love Yellowstone. If you go to Wyoming and you ask people in Wyoming, unless they make their living from Yellowstone, you ask them, what do you think about having this large federal entity in your backyard? They'll all say, I hate it. I hate having the federal government there, and I don't like all the things that go with it. So Montanans are the ones who really have supported and loved Yellowstone Park. And they were the ones who discovered it. So Henry Dana Washburn, um, well, even Norris, uh, who's one of the superintendents, was a Montanan. So there's lots of Montana history in Yellowstone Park. But those guys were the first who did the the big discovery of Yellowstone Park, if you want to call it the discovery. I mean, it was known by lots of, like you said, Jim Bridger and a lot of other expeditions before. But these guys are the ones who had connections. They all had connections in the federal government. And when they got out after exploring the park, they said, this is something that has to be set aside and we can do it. We have the connection. So they, uh, they went back and talked to their friends in Congress. Uh, they knew people in the army and uh, because of their reports and because of how they uh, managed their expedition, they had l- 
I mean, you could call it legal grounds. Uh, they took a, a military escort with them, and because you have a military man with you, when he writes a report, it's an official report. So they could take official reports to Congress and say, this is what's really out there. So Congress has to address that. And then when Congress read the reports, heard everything that they talked about, they said, okay, we're going to send a government expedition, an official expedition. And they sent Hayden. Hayden went in 1871. And in 1871, he verified everything that Washburn had said was there. And with that information, they went back to Congress and said, yeah, we should set this aside. We need to protect it. Yep. Well, aside from your regular backcountry trips that you do throughout the summer season, you also offer a handful of pretty unique historical trips that are centered around the people, uh, the lessons from these early expeditions. Sometimes you bring in some pretty unique guests mm-hmm. to help with these trips. Tell us a little bit sure. about those. Uh, uh, we used to, and he's gotten older now, so we haven't brought him with us in a while. But we brought, we've brought retired rangers with us in the backcountry who are uh, in their own right historians who love the park. Uh, we take uh, trips that follow, like we follow the Washburn Expedition. We go down the east side of Yellowstone Lake, uh, cross over and come out um, Heart Lake. And in, in following that expedition, we're walking in the footsteps of, of the Washburn Expedition. We stay at their camp. So they camped on Beaver Dam Creek and we camp on Beaver Dam Creek. And we can sit there in the exact spot and say it was here that the Washburn Expedition stayed up all night because they couldn't sleep because the mountain lions were doing laps around camp and screaming all night. And they had huge fires built and rifles out waiting just in case a cat came in after them. So we sit in those same spots. And uh, we 150 to... years later. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, and there, it doesn't look any different. I mean, that's the fun part of it. Yeah. There's been a fire burnt through there, but we don't know that a fire hadn't burnt through there years before the Washburn went through. So we're, we're in those same places, feeling those same things. And there are still mountain lions in the Yellowstone and there are still wild animals out there and there's still wolves walking around. So our guests feel what they felt that 150 years ago. Well, another pretty interesting fact is the Yellowstone is is still today home to the largest concentration of mammals in the lower 48. I think I've heard there are like 67 different species of mammals. There are also, you know, 300 species of birds, at least 16 different types of fish. But again, you know, when people who come to, to Montana and Wyoming and Idaho access the park, oftentimes they're kind of trying to race through the park. As you said earlier, I'm going to see it in a day. They're, they're driving on the roads at 55. They're, you know, jamming in with the crowds at Old Faithful. You're seeing very little of kind of the natural ecosystem. And, and, and this biodiversity and experiencing the wildlife of the park has is, is always been a big part of your trips. Exactly. And that's part of that, you know, being the interpreter, when we are helping them understand the backcountry, you know, we sit down in the evening, we start talking about, you know, the wolves. Everybody wants to know, tell us about the wolves. So we talk about the reintroduction of the wolf in the park and the changes that that has wrought in the park. And it's, you know, it's not that now we just have wolves and no elk. I mean, that's what everybody, you know, complains about. We don't have any elk because the wolves ate them all. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the wolves ate uh, two-thirds of the elk in the park. But that's because it was overpopulated by two-thirds of elk in the park. So we have brought it down to a sustainable level that it used to be. This was the historic, this is what the Washburn Expedition saw when they rode through the park, was about 9,000 elk, not not 36,000 elk. Trying to restore more of that natural balance. Exactly. And that's been obviously a controversial topic in the areas that surround the park. But, you know, back in the day when you remove all the predator species, you know, everything gets knocked out of balance. It does. And it was very out of balance. And that's what we like to talk about. You know, we now have aspen groves that are growing up in the park that weren't there even 15 years ago. 
Uh, we have uh, new bird species in the park that weren't, not new, returning bird species in the park that weren't there because they didn't have any habitat because the trees were all gone. Uh, we have beaver that are back in the park that weren't there before because the willows were all gone. The, the elk were grazing the park to death. And we love our big ungulates. We love to see those great big bulls out there. But uh, they were killing the park. And it was not only drying out, or it wasn't just eating the, the vegetation in the park. It was drying out the park. And that's not good for our fish. You know, it was, it was opening hillsides. So now we're getting more erosion. And, it was, and they were silting in small streams. And without the beaver there, there was also places where small streams were beginning to erode and wash out. So, you know, whether it's siltation or washing out one way or the other, there was being damaged because of the elk that we had in the park. Well, I'm always amazed, Shane, wherever I go in the world, you know, when you see these ecosystems, I've learned that, you know, if we just get out of the way, um, everything works, everything finds that natural balance. Mm -hmm. And Anytime it gets out of whack is usually because of something that man has, has done. Right. Yeah. Um, but Yellowstone's a prime example of that. And, and, you know, whether it's the elk, whether it's the impact they have on, you know, the, the waters and the health of the waters and the spawning habitat, all of that, it's, it's easy when we go in and, and, and make decisions um, to knock that natural balance out of its order. Right. So it's, it's good to, to see it, you know, returning in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, you know, another thing that's interesting about Yellowstone, a lot of people don't realize that, that Yellowstone sits on top of an active volcano, which is in fact one of the world's largest calderas. It's like 45 by 30 miles in size. You know, it's one of the reasons there are more than 10,000 hydrothermal features throughout the park. And, and I read an interesting deal. The park usually experiences somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 earthquakes on an annual basis. I mean, this is an active place. Yes. Yep. And they talk about these, they're called earthquake swarms. There'll be 300 earthquakes in, in a month in one area in the park, and then it'll move to another area in the park and there'll be 300 earthquakes over there. They have uh, sensors all over the park that, that are registering how the park even breathes. So there are times where the park will begin to rise. It'll rise a couple inches a year. Uh, for four or five years, and then it'll rest back down, and it'll go back down, and then it'll go up again and down again. So the 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 ground is breathing inside this, you know, inside the caldera. Uh, they're registering temperature. Uh, there is a time at Norris Geyser Basin the temp the ground temperature. If you put a thermometer on the ground, it was 104 degrees, and the air temperature was was 80, but the ground itself was superheating, and then it cooled back off again. So we have these you know things that are happening inside the park all the time. And it just, it just helps us remember that this is a volcano and it's not just a volcano. It is the volcano. It is the largest, the volcano, super volcano, the biggest volcano in the world. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research <clears throat> in one of the bigger volcanoes that was very destructive was Krakatoa. I don't know if you ever heard of Krakatoa. Yep. It's over in Indonesia and Krakatoa, when it, when it blew, they said it blew five cubic miles of earth into the air when yellowstone blows it'll blow 425 miles of cubic and this is cubic this is not just flat you know so this the size and krakatoa is one of the bigger ones so you you compare that to yellowstone there's nothing like yellowstone in the world yeah it is a wild place for sure well, well i hope when it goes uh i'm sitting right on top of it because i don't want to be around for the aftermath right. no doubt well, let me ask you this. In, in all of your years of exploring the Yellowstone backcountry, Shane, what are, what are a few of the most kind of fascinating and wild things you've experienced or seen out there? 
And I know that that's a tough question because right. you've seen so much, but been a- just a few that come to mind that, that uh, are, are amazing. There are just moments, I guess, uh, that you get to experience in Yellowstone that you don't experience other places. Uh, one, I was uh, with, I was working for another outfitter early on. I was probably 20 years old. So I've been, well, maybe 23 years old. And uh, he was doing business. You know, he was working on selling his company. He was, he was in the back country, but he was still in the front country. And he actually had a cell phone and we got up on a ridge and we stopped for lunch and he had to go off and find a place where he could get a signal. So he's out in the woods making a phone call. And why he's making a phone call, I'm sitting there having my lunch. I got my pack mules and my horse and I'm just resting and leaning against a tree. And I look across the way and there's, uh, we're up at, uh, this is Fawn Pass. And at Fawn Pass, there's a little ridge line up there. And I watch, and across the front of this ridgeline comes a nice, beautiful bull elk. And he was a five-by-five bull elk. I'm like, wow, that's pretty. He's a nice guy. And behind him comes a six-by-six, and then another six-by-six, and then a seven-by-seven, and then an eight-by-eight. And to watch an eight-by-eight bull walk, and they just paraded one at a time in front of me and went around this knob and then back in the trees, and then it went back down to another five-by-five, a six-by-six. I mean, they're just kind of mixed in there. But to see all these elk just parade in front of me while I'm eating lunch, quietly resting, and he missed the whole thing because he's on the phone. And I thought, this, this tells me that I don't ever want to be on the phone in the backcountry. That is not what this place is about. This place is about sitting here and seeing the display that God has put in front of us of these amazing animals to miss it for a phone call. Not worth it. Yeah. So that was one. And I'm, I'm sure every trip you go out, you see something that just oh, blows your mind. Yep. And a lot of people though, they come in Yellowstone like, oh, we're going to go with you in the back country. We're going to see all the animals. I'm like, actually, if you want to see all the animals, you want to do it on the road because the animals have become so used to the cars that they just walk down the side of the road. In the back country, the animals are still wild. So when we ride along, you'll see an elk and he'll see you. And he's like, are you a wolf? I don't know. I'm going to run just in case. And they dash. Uh, but we do see uh, quite a variety of animals back there, but it is not like the road. So I don't ever want people to come back and say, oh yeah, we're going to ride up the trail and see a hundred elk like you do on the road. No, you're not. But when you see an elk, you're going to see a wild elk. They're going to act like a wild elk. You're going to see a wild bear who acts like a wild bear. He's not caught between cars trying to figure out how do I get through here? There's a whole bunch of cars in my way. I want to get over there. And the bear's nervous and moving in circles and really uncomfortable. I don't want to see bears like that. That's not fair to the bear, first of all. And it's not wild. It's, I mean, it is, we could do that in a zoo, see a bear who's uncomfortable doing circles. It's the backcountry where you see the wild animals. And that's, that's the amazing part of getting away from the roads and the crowds. Well, I, I've got a couple final questions for you, Shane. And, and again, I specifically want to bring it back for our angling audience. Um, we talked early on in the program about the, the wide variety of different trips and locations that you access throughout the park. If you had to kind of narrow it down, give us your top picks and trip locations for newer anglers, people who are kind of new to fly fishing. They're excited about going out and hopefully catching a lot of fish. What are a couple of your top picks for that? A lot of fish. I would actually take a lot of people up into Cash Creek. Cash Creek is a tributary of the Lamar. Uh, it's, it's about seven miles into our first camp, another couple miles up to the second camp. And it is a fishery that when you fish it in July... It, it doesn't get fished very often. There are a lot of fish in there, anywhere from 8 to 14 inches. So there's, there are fish who aren't fished often. You get some size. They're not huge, but they're still active, good fish, and there's a lot of them. So you go in, and uh, it's easy access for people who aren't used to riding. They don't want to ride 30 miles to get to that best spot. 
Uh, Cash Creek's a great starter place to go. Another good starter place is actually Slough Creek. Uh, because you can see everything like we talked about before, you learn if you're a new angler trying to figure out how am I going to, am I doing this right? The fish are going to tell you the whole time in Slough Creek. So you, you get schooling when you're in Slough Creek. The fish will school you. Uh, and it's a good schooling. I mean, there are times where I've gone and I've been schooled by fish in Slough Creek and it's not a good schooling. <laughs> but for that beginning angler, that is, you know, that's a great place for them. And they get to see fish. I mean, so many times you're out there fishing. I know there's fish in here, but I just don't know where. You know where they are. So you can practice. Okay, there's the fish. I need to work on that fish. Let me work on my drift. Let me work on my, uh, which pattern. I'm looking for the right fish. There's a bug. that, And, and there's so many bugs in Slough Creek. You can watch one float by. Well, I don't know what it's called, but I'm going to match that by pulling out my box and getting that fly. And then you start catching fish. Well, how about uh, trips for families with young kids that, yeah, they want to do some fishing, but they really kind of want to experience the greatness of the park? Yep. That uh, good place is up in the northwest corner of Yellowstone Park. Uh, going up on the Upper Gallatin River, on Fan Creek, uh, into Specimen Lake. Uh, those are all good places. There are good fish populations in there, but it's good family-friendly country. It's not too tough of rides. Uh, the camps are pretty comfortable. There's things for kids to do if they don't want to fish. You know, at, at Sportsman's Lake, you, know, you can be fishing on one end and swimming in the other end, so the kids have a good time out there. Uh, so that's a good place. Uh, another family-friendly, if you have kids who are just a little bit older, Going down into the Beckler, uh, because there are hot springs to swim in, uh, there's waterfalls to see and play in. There's, I mean, it's a fun place just to go. And then the fishing there, we already talked, is, is really good. So that's a good combination for, you know, wife and kids to play and dad to fish or, you know, wife to fish and dad to play with the kids, however it works. Yeah. How about a favorite destination or two for the serious hardcore anglers that are looking for super remote waters, maybe some bigger fish, you know, they're, they're going there just to, to fish, you know, Yellowstone. Yep. So that is the headwaters of the Lamar. Uh, we have one that we call the Lamar over the top. You ride in from Pelican Creek, go over top of Mist Creek Pass, and you drop down to the, to the upper end of the Lamar. And the Lamar, uh, where Lamar jo joins Cold Creek, uh, that confluence is really where the fishing starts on the Lamar. Once you get above that, it's small water, small fish, they're really spotty. But once you hit that Cold Creek Junction, that's where the big fish begin. And because it's so far in there, it does not get fished very often. There are some outfitters who get in there, but it's not like Slough where it's every week somebody new. Uh, it gets a lot of rest time up there. And those who fish it, they come through. There's a lot of water up there. So, it, you know, even though there's people on it, uh, not everybody's hitting every hole. So there's a lot of rest time for those fish up there. And there are some nice fish. I would I personally say that the Lamar has surpassed Slough Creek in the quality and quantity of fish uh, catchable. Now, there are more fish in Slough Creek. The bends of the river are closer together, so there are more fish in concentration, but you will catch more fish on the Lamar uh, because they haven't been fished as hard. Well, that's good information. And uh, hopefully everybody who's listening to this was taking notes on that because <laughs> a lot of great trips, a lot of yep. great possibilities. Well, final question for you, Shane, and, and this has been incredibly helpful and so educational about, you know, the back country of Yellowstone. You know, last question, if you ask the American, the average American, kind of what Yellowstone National Park is known for and all about, they, they're, they're probably going to say, you know, like Old Faithful, the geysers, you know, bears, gift shops on the edge of the park. But in your own words, what do you think Yellowstone should be known for? Yellowstone is is wilderness 
I mean, it's not like we talked before, not technically wilderness, but to go less than a mile from the road and to walk into 2 million acres of wildness. Well, I think we could change that. Instead of wilderness, it's wildness. Uh, to get away, Yellowstone is, is, is the wildness of America put in one place. And you can drive through and see, you know, a touch of that wildness in, I mean, it's still wild to see thermal features. Those are wild. You don't get in there. You don't touch those. You don't play with those. It is something that's still dangerous, but you get a boardwalk to see it from. Uh, so there's, there's roadside wildness, but then there's backcountry wildness. So I would say Yellowstone to, to put it into a word would be wildness. I love it. Well, thanks for joining us. This has been great. Good. Appreciate having you here with us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip, sign up for newsletters and new podcasts, and stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints, and remember, life is short and no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Waypoints is produced by Brian Gregson with music provided by the Steep Canyon Rangers. Visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more destination profiles, travel news, and expert advice, and be sure to join us for our next episode.